So would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation? Uh, We're going to be in chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, the end of the introduction. We're going to study verses 9 through 20. In our last study, we heard that the Lord say, He is the Alpha and the Omega. He, He was and is and is to come. We learn that phrases like that are our reminder that he's sovereignly in control of all history. All of us probably need that reminder this morning. He's sovereignly in control of all history. He knows all things. And he knows the purposes for all things. He knows the purposes of every second of our lives. And as such, he knows the trials and the tribulations that are ahead of us. And as a good, good father... If we'll listen, he's always preparing us. God doesn't just arrive in the midst of your trouble. If you look look at the panorama of your life, oh my goodness, he was preparing me for this. Sometimes my response is, I wish I would have listened. I wish I, I would have paid more attention. But he's always preparing us for what's ahead. So this morning, God is going to give us a view of Christ that we need. You absolutely need this. I absolutely need this. If we are going to victoriously face a future that include times of pain and persecution. You're going to need a vision of Christ that is bigger than I think probably most of us day by day have. And thank God for this text to help adjust us. As you're going to see, our greatest need in times of trouble is to see Jesus ever more clearly in his divine glory and in his saving power. To see him as both king and comforter. To see him as both fearful and faithful. So would you join me as we read God's inerrant and inspired and sufficient, and authoritative, and heart-transforming word, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one Like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Oh, holy God, we, we come before you, and we're so thankful that the same Holy Spirit that inspired this sacred text is the same Holy Spirit that will help us understand it. And, just as importantly, apply it. God, we know that you didn't give us this physical vision of the glorious Christ in the way John received it, but we're so thankful that you've given us the word of this glorious vision to have the same kind of life-transforming impact as if we saw it with our own eyes. And so, God, would you pour out your spirit upon this message would you pour out your spirit upon our hearts? Because we need to see you as you are so that we can be overcomers in times of tribulation. And we ask these things for your glory and the strengthening joy of every heart here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, the following question will make the most sense to those of you who have been out of high school for at least 18 to 20 years. So this would be for you if you're 36 and older. So can you give me, humor me? How many of you are 36 and older? Okay, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. So those of you who are old, more older than 36, um, how many of you would like other people to relate to you now based upon your senior picture in high school? I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, probably not too many of us. So I'll be the guinea pig first for this case study. Marcus, would you put up? That's me. Um. <laughs> If you only related me to, with me today based on that picture from 1977, I, it's so funny because I still wonder when I'm going to grow up. But I'm just, I know there's a bunch of younger people here going, 1977, oh my gosh, that's ancient. Um, you, would, you would really, if you were just going to relate, oh, thank you for taking that off. If you were just going to relate to me based on that picture, you, you could summarize me as... I could rock an afro, right? I could rock an afro. And I was one of the biggest idolaters you would have ever wanted to know. You know how I was an idolater is I worship baseball. Afro and baseball, that was Billy. That was, that was essentially me. I didn't date because of baseball. I ate nutritionally because of baseball. I didn't do drugs or alcohol because of baseball. Wow. 
There's nothing wrong with a picture, isn't there? I mean, thank God for pictures. But the problem with a picture is they tend to be pretty one-dimensional view of persons, right? It's just pretty one-dimensional. And I want to ask you, if you reduce someone to just their one or two best or worst qualities, you're probably not going to have a very healthy relationship with them. I want you to think about Husbands and wives, when you're, when you're having a lingering conflict, when you're, when you've, and this may apply, this probably applies to some couples here, when, when you've started to disengage your heart from your spouse a little bit, right? You're still sharing the same address, same bed, same food, same kids. But, you're, but, but you've disengaged your hearts. Why? Because you've reduced your spouse to a one-dimensional thing, probably the one dimension that you're most aggravated about, right? It's not healthy for relationships, is it? How about, don't we do that with our employment, our employers, our bosses? We can do that with our churches. We reduce our churches to just their biggest weakness and where they drive us the most crazy. Well, I'll never forget the day years ago when Jan said, hey, have you ever seen Jesus' senior picture? And I thought, my, my, wife, my wife is crazy, but I thought she lost her mind now, right? And I said, Jesus' senior picture? And then she showed it to me. Marcus, do you want to put up Jesus' senior picture? <laughs> that's, what Jan, that's what Jan has called Jesus' senior picture. Let me ask you. Do you have a pretty one-dimensional view of your Savior? That's what that picture really reminds me of. I mean, so if we were going to, you know, I'd, I'd say, well, maybe this guy, maybe he could be a therapist. Maybe, maybe he, this is Jesus the therapist. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some wisdom in that face. He really found some good hair products back in 30 AD. I mean, look at the hair. I mean, but... One dim, a one-dimensional Jesus, please hear me, a one-dimensional Jesus is going to be of no help to you in tribulation. We need the Jesus the Bible is painting for us today, the, the, the Jesus that the Bible is proclaiming to us today. And, and just so you know, um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if you've ever seen artists that have tried to paint what we read today. They're really weird paintings, aren't they? I mean, just the Jesus with this two-edged sword coming and his eyes are fire and his head is white as wool. We're not talking about what Jesus looks like, are we? We're talking about what Jesus is like. And you're going to need all of this Jesus to be an overcomer in tribulation. So that's where we're going with this, where the text takes us today. It's the beauty of our passage this morning. It's not painting a one-dimensional picture of what Jesus looks like. One-dimensional. For some of us, Jesus is just all forgiveness all the time. He's like Mr. Rogers. He forgives just because he has to. You know, of course, just to forgive. Or... And if you have that one-dimensional view of Jesus, you're probably not really very convicted about your sin. Yeah, you know, you know you make some mistakes, but you wouldn't necessarily call it sin. So you're not really seeing the majesty and glory and holiness 
of God and his power. For some of you, you may be aware of his holy power, but man, that kind of freaks you out. And Jesus is really somebody who's kind of far away from you, who really doesn't even love me. That's the problem with one-dimensional views of Jesus. C.S. Lewis recognized that when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when he did his character Aslan. Aslan is the lion. He represented Jesus Christ. And I put one of the best quotes in the book or in the movie if you watch it. So Susan is having a conversation with Mr. Beaver and And Mr. Beaver is talking about Aslan, and he says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So do we have a one-dimensional view of Jesus? Do we have a one-dimensional view? Or do we see him in both his divinity and his humanity, in his suffering and his glory, in his judgment and his joy, as conqueror and comforter. Our biggest need to be an overcomer in times of tribulation is to see Jesus in his holy glory and his saving love. Our main point, and I just hope that that you can take this away and just, just sometimes even bring this thought back into your devotional life. And are you cultivating this kind of relationship with Jesus? Main point is this, Christ gives us grace to overcome tribulation by giving us a relationship with him that includes both reverent fear and intimate fellowship. Do you have that? Listen, here's where all of us are. We're all on one side of that or the other. Some of us are more on the reverent fear side. Some of us are more on the intimate fellowship side. God wants to raise the bar for all of us in both of these qualities of relationship with Christ Jesus. So let's unpack this and let's see what John, uh, that the Holy Spirit gave John to speak to us. So this is the first point. We need both reverence and intimacy with Jesus because we're living currently in the times of tribulation. Do you know that? Let's, let's see it in the text. Verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is in exile. He's on the island of Patmos. That's in the Aegean Sea. And it's, he's there because of being faithful to Christ. He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's there because of church planting. He's there because they, they would go into hard places to preach the gospel, to bring the gospel where it had not been heard before. And it was not popular received, particularly by governments. John didn't compromise on sharing the gospel, and now he's paying the price for it. 
There's differing views about this being on, on a prisoner on Patmos. He may have been permitted some relative freedoms on the island, but, but you would lose property and civil rights, and the worst part, relationally, you were separated from family and friends. Some say it could have been way worse than that. It could have been marked by regular beatings, perpetual chains, insufficient clothing and food, sleep on bare ground, dark, in, you're, you're, you're sleeping in dark rat-infested prisons, in relentless manual labor, under the lash of a military whip. And he calls himself our brother and partner in the tribulation. It, it meant something to those seven churches then. Remember that seven is a representative that, that those churches are not just those churches at that time. They're the churches that represent all churches until Jesus comes. It wouldn't be too much longer. The heavy-duty persecution hadn't set in church-wide. Uh, Domitian was the emperor, and he was on the brink of doing things like this. If you were a Christian, they would drill holes in your skull and pour molten lead inside. He would tar and feather you and, pull, put, and strap you to a pole and light you to be a light to the world and his mocking of Christianity. That's what was ahead. That's what was ahead. And so John calls himself our brother and our partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. So let's think about this, this partner in tribulation. You know, we've, we've been trying to, to, to just have you almost have as a, just a ready thought in your daily life that you're living in the end times. You are living in the end times. In fact, this book was inspired at the beginning of the end times. The end times have been from the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. So that, that is the inauguration of the end times. A synonym for the end times is tribulation. I, I doubt that hardly any of us have been raised with this thought that, oh, we're living in the end times, which means there will be times of tribulation. John mentions, listen to this quote. I thought this was a tremendous quote from Richard Phillips in his commentary on Revelation. John mentions the suffering of believers. First, because tribulation marks the path that leads us to the kingdom. Just as for Jesus, the cross preceded the crown. So with this in mind, we may find it remarkable that many Christians read the book of Revelation as teaching that the church will be removed from the world's great tribulation. Nothing could be more contrary to the emphasis of this book. And I'm not, if, if, if you're not there yet, don't, that's okay. I think as we get to the end of the book, you're probably going to see that. Or if really the entire New Testament the great tribulation of the end times, so there, there is going to be something more than what we've known yet. The great tribulation of the end times will merely intensify the tribulation that is always the Christian's lot. 
Paul taught that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22. John Calvin wrote, The church of Christ has been so divinely constituted from the beginning that the cross has always been the way to victory, death the way to life. That's powerful, isn't it? It makes a difference whether you see living in the end times or living in times of tribulation as only relegated to a final seven-year period before Christ returns or whether you see the entire time between Christ's resurrection and his second coming as the end times, as times of tribulation. So, okay, let's go to current events. So how, do you, how are you processing the saber-rattling that's going on right now between Russia and the United States? Listen, I'm old enough. I registered for the draft, and it, 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 that ended. But I was registered for the draft with, with my rock and my afro in 77. So I want you to think about this. Parents, I want you to listen. I want you to think about this. How are we interpreting? This is a sobering moment in history. It's one thing for us to contend with Afghanistan and Iran and, and all this. But man, let's bring in China and Russia. And Oh, wow. This is a little different, isn't it? Because if there was some kind of war that broke out between these dominating world powers, what if your child is drafted? How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to process through that? And I'm not, listen, this isn't a political advertisement. I'm just asking you, it makes a difference whether you think tribulation is something that hopefully I'm not going to experience. Hopefully it's just going to be those people living at that last seven-year period. Versus, well, yeah, of course there's saber-rattling. Because we're living in tribulation. And what does God want to do? Give us a vision of Christ that makes us overcomers in it. That's what this is about. So we're not hanging our heads in despair. We're not thinking about, I mean, listen, you know, there's so many things. Those of you who are older, remember, remember the exodus to Canada? You know, from the people that didn't want to get drafted and all that. We're going to find some ways to just try to hide from world events. What are we going to do if there's a pandemic that comes that actually is killing 50% of the population? What are we going to do with governments that rule with an iron fist? You know what we're going to do? We're going to behold Jesus. That's what we're going to do. And that's what this text is calling us to and giving us grace to do. So he says we're not just partners in tribulation and in sharing Christ's suffering, we're also partners in Christ's kingdom. And this is so good. He's the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the conquering king. He's conquered sin and death and Satan through his own death and burial and resurrection. And he gives us royal authority and power to obey him, and to continue to live on the mission of making disciples of all peoples until he calls us to himself or until he comes again to, to bring full and final renewal and restoration of all things. He gives us royal authority. Sometimes I think we pray for the, the filling of the Holy Spirit just to have a little more exciting life. Just to see, maybe, could maybe it lead to a sign or a wonder? 
God gives us royal authority. Some of you have a broken heart, and your broken heart is tempting you to drift from the Lord. Your broken heart is not really a good uh, resource for you to live an obedient life. In fact, some of us justify our disobedience because of our brokenness. Here's, 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 the, here's the pathway of overcoming. It's we're going to share in the sufferings of Christ. We're going to share in this times of tribulation. We're going to follow in his footsteps. But we're going to have royal authority from him to be obedient to him. Even if our heart is breaking. There's an old song. Smile though your heart is breaking. I would change the words. Obey though your heart is breaking. He's given you power to do it. So make it more personal. So I'm not just, let's, listen, if, if Jesus can preserve us, if Jesus is speaking of horrendous times of tribulation, which, which we may be coming into as a, as a country in the next few years, I don't know. But if just taking what we know of Scripture, if God gives grace to overcome that kind of tribulation, what, what are your problems right now? What's your problem in your marriage? That God can't give you royal authority to overcome. To obey and forgive your spouse even as he's forgiven you. We have no excuses, do we? We have a lot of grace and resources. So we're not just partners in tribulation but we're partners in the kingdom, receiving the royal authority of his Holy Spirit and his inerrant word to live obediently and to continue to make disciples for Christ. How are we ever going to go into unreached people groups at the threat of death if we don't have this kind of vision of Jesus? So we're not just partners in tribulation, we're partners in the kingdom. That is awesome. And then is it any wonder that we come, become partners in patient endurance? Listen, if you're struggling with patience, you need better relationships with the body of Christ. God intends our relationships. We're partners, right? Partners in sharing in Christ's suffering. Partners in the royal authority. The empower to be obedient to him. To make disciples for him. To continue being faithful witnesses. Even if it puts us on Patmos. And we need to patiently endure. Well, we've got all we need to do it, don't we? That we can patiently endure until we see him face to face. That's, that's, the, that's the power of this. And listen, just so you'll see, this is the theme of Revelation. So look at Revelation 12, 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they have not loved their lives even unto death. So therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, 
because he knows that his time is short. So how do we overcome? We overcome by taking up our cross and following Jesus. He paved the pathway for us to do that, share in his sufferings. We overcome by the power of the victory he won for us and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we overcome through patient endurance. That's what it means to be a kid of the king. Amen? So can you see how a one-dimensional view of Jesus is just not going to help us to be overcomers? This opening vision is the foundation for the entire book. John is suffering tribulation because of his faith in Jesus and his witness for Jesus. And so will we. This first vision gives both John and us a vision and understanding of Christ in all of his sovereign and all of his holy glory, along with declarations of his triumphant, loving, and saving work for his people. So we have all we need to endure in worship of the Lord and witness for the Lord until he comes again. That's why God gives us this glorious vision of Jesus. So in the words of 2 Corinthians 3.18, when we behold him, we will become more like him. God wants us to see Jesus in all of his glory, all of his holy and saving glory, so that we can become more like Jesus. What does that look like? Here's what I think, just, just a very simple sentence. Here's what I think that looks like. It means that we, that living an obedient life will be more important than a, to us than living a comfortable life. I'm going to say it again. When we behold him, we'll become more like him. And what is he like? Living an obedient life for the glory of the Lord is far more important than living a comfortable life. The vision we're about to see is, is to, to equip us to open our eyes to that Jesus, that glorious Jesus, multifaceted, many dimensions to who he is and how much he loves us. So second point is we need a relationship with Christ that is rooted in reverent fear so that we can become overcomers in the tribulation. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And, and that trumpet was, was, was blasting out. There's this imagery here of, of a call to worship. Josh gives us a call to worship. Jesus himself is giving us a call to worship and it's also a call to war. In the spirit, he's talking about God giving divine inspiration for John to write this authoritative and errant word to, to give us the book of Revelation. The Lord's Day, it's a day devoted to worship. It's, it's meaning that Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday. And that day, he began the work of making all things new through his saving grace. The day that includes the promise that he'll finish what he began. Sundays are a very dear day to us. Verse 11, he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down in words all that he was seeing in the vision and send it to the churches. And remember, remember the seven is, is not just to Laodicea and all of the rest, it's to us. So John wrote down all that he saw so that we, even though we don't see it physically, can still behold the glorious Christ through the living word of Christ. That's our hope. That's my prayers. God, please pour your spirit out upon the preaching and teaching of this word 
that we would have the same experience that John had even if we didn't see it physically with our own eyes. That's what God intends in his word. And this inspired written portrayal of John is, is meant to have, have it have the same impact that, that it had on him, that we have that same impact. So then he turns to see the voice that was speaking to me and he sees seven golden lampstands. And verse 20 tells us that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We learn in our study that the Holy Spirit is referenced in Zechariah and later on in Revelation as also representing the lampstands. Well, there's really this union between the Holy Spirit and the churches. The oil of the lampstands is is symbolic of the empowering presence or the fuel of the Holy Spirit. And the lampstands are to be the light of Christ and the gospel to the world. In the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, the lampstand was in the holy place next to the Holy of Holies. In the New Testament, the latter-day temple is the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit to shine the light of Christ to all nations. And that's why Ephesians 5 says, so regularly be filled with the Holy Spirit so we can regularly be a light to the world. Verse 13 says, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The son of man comes from Daniel 7. So this is again why we did Daniel before we taught Revelation. Let's look at these passages in Daniel. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. In the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented to him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. John wasn't just seeing Jesus as the Son of Man, though. He was also seeing him in being illustrated as the Ancient of Days, which is just a reminder to us that this isn't just Jesus in his humanity. This is also Jesus in his divinity. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's not just suffering servant. He's conquering king. And so Daniel 10 picks up on this, doesn't it? So it's in your notes. I lifted up my eyes and look and behold a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Jesus is wearing these long robes and this golden sash, and they're really representing the priestly garments. And you can find that in Exodus 28 and 29. And one of the responsibilities, so I want you to picture this, these seven lampstands representing the seven churches, and here is Jesus in priestly garments. And why that's so important is that the priest was constantly present in the midst of the churches and always at work watching and constantly acting to ensure that the light kept burning regardless of the hardships or warfare or heartache that might be going on at the time. You may think, you may think that right now in this, the stuff you're walking through, your light may be shining just, it, <laughs> that phrase, this little light of mine, you would go, yep, that's right for me. It's no big light coming from me. 
if it's anything, it's a little light. Well, guess why you have a little light? Because Jesus is making sure it keeps burning. Jesus is the one that initiated your salvation. Jesus is the one that will sustain your salvation. G.K. Beale had a great, and we're going to see this as we get into the, the letters to each church. Christ tends the ecclesiastical lampstands by commending, correcting, exhorting, and warning. In order to secure the church's fitness for service as light bearers in a dark world. It's a great, great quote. So isn't one of our treasured truths about Jesus is that he's our great high priest. And he's not just our saving sacrifice. He's our interceder, our intercessor, always praying for us. Always ensuring that our faith not fail. Every symbol we see of Christ in Revelation 1 comes from a description of the Messiah in the Old Testament. The white hair is the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. It's, it's the white hair, not of being old like in, in chronological time. It's the white hair of eternal wisdom. So think about this. These things are supposed to grip us. Where have you complained this week? I would venture to say all of us have complained about something this week. We stand before a God whose hair is white as wool, reflecting eternal wisdom, perfect plans for our lives, for his glory and our godly good. Who am I to complain when I have a Savior with hair as white as wool? Reflecting the eternal wisdom. I should shut my mouth, shouldn't I? It's not just that. His eyes are like fire. They're like lasers. You have somebody in your life that you, you kind of get uncomfortable around because they just look right through you. This is, this is even more profound. Jesus sees what we call mistakes and he would say, that's no mistake, that's a sin. And even the smallest, we think the smallest sins deserve an eternal judgment. That's what his eyes pierce us with and see. But they're also eyes that see us in our suffering. And they're alert to our needs. It's just, I mean, picture the eyes of a groom watching his bride walk down the aisle. He doesn't know anyone else is in the room. That's Jesus' eyes on you. That's what we're seeing here. His feet like burnished bronze. And we see that in Daniel 10, his moral purity and exposes all impurity with just judgment, but it also conquers the impurity with his saving sacrifice. It's a face that shines with a holy beauty that's brighter than the sun. Well, you remember when Paul, when Saul was on the road to Damascus and he sees this bright light. Did you ever stop to connect the dots biblically? What was he seeing? The shining face of the thrice holy God revealed in Jesus Christ. He's a voice like many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to a place like Niagara Falls or a profound waterfall. Have you ever noticed that, that Niagara Falls silences all other sounds but its own? I hope that gives you a reminder of a hymn we sing. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark, how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. That's the voice of our Lord. 
Sharp sword means it's two-edged. It cuts enemies down in judgment. If If you're rejecting the salvation offer of Jesus, but it also cuts like a cowpel to save us from our sins. In his hand, he held seven stars. It speaks of angels. We'll talk about that in the upcoming weeks. So he's not just the ruler of the church on earth, but he's the ruler over all angelic principalities and powers calling them all to bow down to do his will. Can you now understand? Can you now understand why John's first response wasn't, oh, I want to hug him. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is huggable too. But I think too many of us have a one-dimensional view of Jesus. He's just huggable. And you find yourself not growing in godliness. Sin doesn't really bother you. Whether you're, whether you're a church participant, I don't even want to say attender, whether you're engaged with the body of Christ for the mission of Christ, doesn't really bother you. I love Alan's phrase. I love to say it. When you miss church, do you miss church? Have you? Have you had an experience? Or do you have a semi-regular experience? Remember, this is John who laid his head on Jesus' breast, on his chest, on the night of the Last Supper. So this is the response of a believer. Are there times in your life when, when even, you don't have to get on your knees physically, but are there times in your life where your heart bows down to remember the judgment that you rightly deserved. But again, we don't stay there, do we? Because the text doesn't stay there either, does it? Right? Daniel falls like a dead man in reverent worship. I'll let you, I hope, please read the quote from Jonathan Edwards. I, 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 just, I think that'll bless your hearts because it talks about how this experience of John the apostle is not just John's experience. God wants to give this kind of walk with Christ to every believer, and you'll see it in John, Jonathan Edwards' testimony. But he didn't just leave us on our face. He says something, and that's the last part. We need a relationship with Christ that's rooted in intimate fellowship to be overcomers with him in tribulation. And don't you love the word but in scripture, but God. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I'm the first, I'm the last. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. God is fearful, and he loves us. Could somebody please say amen? Amen. I'm the first and the last. He sees all things. He knows all things. He directs all things. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive 
Do you believe that we serve a risen Savior? He's in the world today. Do you believe that? If we believe it, why do we doubt his promises? He brings what is dead back to life. What is too difficult for him? Why give up on a marriage that you feel is dead and gone? Or a parent-child relationship that just seems dead, no reconciling it? Or a Christian-to-Christian relationship? Or that your failures of your past are not fatal? If you believe in a God who raises dead things back to life, why don't you believe that he raises up our hearts to newness of life, to follow him in faithfulness until he comes again? That's the God we serve. He holds the keys of death and Hades. Death will not hold you in the hell you deserve. Death will not hold you in the hell you deserve because Jesus conquered it. He paid the price for it. He rose again to show us that the price is paid and his presence will be forever with all who follow him. The words fear not find their basis in the fact that Jesus has conquered sin and death so the believer doesn't have to fear suffering or martyrdom. Because Jesus endured them both and emerged victoriously. And so will we. Josh, would you come and bring the team? What I want to do is something just a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Uh, I'm just going to ask that we spend three or four minutes. Amy and Kenzie, if you want to come up, uh, I just want to ask that we spend three or four minutes um, in personal prayer. You know, I've, I've said in the past that I think one of the best first responses to the word of God is prayer. And I think particularly this text today calls us to prayer. So, so Amy and Kenzie will be here. So listen, if, if you would like to actually pray with someone during these three, four, five minutes, we've got prayer partners up here to do that. Guys, you know, I know that there's been abuses in the charismatic world with altar calls and all that kind of stuff. But you know what breaks my heart? breaks my heart that I just rarely see Christians bowing down, just calling out to God from their knees. Now, it has to be because your heart is calling you to do that. But I want you to know that, that so I'm trying to think of illustrations so you won't think we're trying to manipulate feelings. This is not feeling-driven. This is truth-driven from the text. If you're home and it's, and it's kind of noisy, Man, you've been reading the word and you've been so convicted and you feel such a need to pray. Don't you change your context so that you can just give more focused attention to the Lord. That when we invite you to come forward, I'm just saying, sometimes you need to change your context so that you can put yourself in a position where I don't want to be distracted. I live a distracted life. I'm tired of living constantly distracted from the Lord. I just want to spend a few sacred minutes focusing on what he's spoken to me today. The glorious Christ. I need to see him 
more reverently and fearfully. Or some of you may, I need to be more intimately in fellowship with him. Those would be two great prayer requests this morning, right? So our precious sisters are here this morning. If you want to do that. So we're just going to, we're just going to have a few minutes of quiet to give us all a chance to respond. Whether you want to come forward and do that response, whether you want to just maybe turn and get down on your knees right there in prayer. Parents, oh my goodness. Again, it has to be the Holy Spirit doing this. One of the most vivid ways God writes a witness for Christ on the heart of children is seeing parents pray. So I'm just going to be quiet for three, four minutes, and then Josh, would you then take us forward in responsive singing to what we've studied today?